Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Palmer bet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer. Download our app today and enjoy straight up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. Thorpe is coming in, gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. in test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. And welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. Today, well, we're joined by a man of many talents. Joel Bowden is a two-time Richmond Best and Fairest and dual All-Australian who became a union leader and is now a Labor politician as a member of the Legislative Assembly in the Northern Territory. A 265-game AFL player across a variety of positions, Joel can also lay claim to inspiring a changing of the rules. Joel, welcome and thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we find you up there in Darwin in these very strange times, of course. What's the latest up there at the moment? We have had our first lockdown in Darwin. It was a 48-hour snap lockdown because of some, I think it's about six, maybe seven uh, coronavirus delta strain out of a mine site and the difficulty with it is the mine site has a lot of workers who travel to all different parts of the country so a guy who was there has come back to Darwin but also unfortunately for the rest of the country um, there's something like 90 contacts or close contact that are being traced across the country. Yeah, yeah. So I guess normally your city this time of year, you know, bustling with tourists, chasing the sun, it must be an eerie sight around town at the moment. It is. I've actually just been into the hospital to have my first Pfizer jab. I booked in a couple of weeks ago and um, wasn't able to get a, an appointment until today. So being able to leave the house and go to the hospital, that's one of those um, five reasons I think you can leave. And I've had my jab. I'm now back at home and there was no one on the road. I actually dropped into the supermarket on the way home. I grabbed something for dinner tonight that we'll cook up on the barbie. Um, but yeah, there was no one around. There was no traffic. And it, it, it done was pretty quiet at the best of times. You know, it was a capital city yeah. um, of, of 100,000. It's not bustling um, all the time. But I, I would say on Friday, I went down to the... the um, the waterfront precinct in Darwin, which is probably tourist central, and I've never seen so many people. Yeah. We, we went to have lunch to farewell um, one of my colleagues, and we all commented that we'd never seen so many people in Darwin. And I know people in the real estate game who are saying they've never had vacancy rates in rentals at less than 1% before. The, the, the Northern Territory and Darwin um, in particular has really grown 
on the back of coronavirus because people have stayed here longer and some people have just decided to move here. I know one person in particular who just packed her car up, was sick of Melbourne and drove to Darwin. Didn't have a job, didn't have anything, just drove to Darwin. Now yeah. she's got a job and she's happy as Larry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, geez, it's different times, isn't it? Now, if we rewind many a year, your childhood was probably on the different side of the scale in terms of where you spent it. Born in Mildura, raised in Alice Springs. And a couple of years in the very small sort of border community town formerly known as Ernabella. What, what was your childhood like, Joel, looking back? Oh, it's fabulous. It was absolutely fabulous. I thank my mum and dad for giving me the breadth of experience yeah. that ultimately has led me to, you know, taking up a political career in the Northern Territory. Because my mum and dad are Melbourne boys and girls. You know, they grew up in Melbourne, they went to school in Melbourne at a point in time when my old man decided to do something else um, outside of Melbourne. He, he moved up to Sunraiser and he, he left Richmond where he was playing in the VFL and um, went north and then they just kept travelling north. We went we went to Annabella, which is somewhere near Uluru, Rock Rock, um, is probably the easiest way of describing it. We've out there for a couple of years. Yeah, can you describe what that community's like, Joel, for the uninitiated? A, a, an outback community is, let's just say, 50 houses scattered around dirt roads, one store, one clinic, one school, and in the middle of absolute nowhere and that area being um, around Uluru in in South Australia um, it's red dirt just red dirt and we went there mum and dad packed up five boys and took us out to Ernabella and my old man was a community advisor so he was sort of like the you know the manager of the of the community and we had if not um, the most amazing time we had a, we had the time that has shaped our family for the rest of our life going and immersing ourselves in an Aboriginal community living out there for two years changes the way that you look at things it, it, it is a um, point in time in my life that has then shaped me and my family for the rest for the rest of our days and you know we, we left there and um, ended up in Alice Springs and I, you know, I grew up in Alice Springs and did everything that you want to do as a kid growing up and just, just had a fabulous time. I mean, one of the best things about Alice Springs was in the winter. It's cold overnight, but generally got to 20 to 25 during the day, and that was the winter. That's, That's when we played footy. It didn't rain. I wore, I wore grass cats for most of my footy career <laughs> um, because you didn't have to wear boots. I think I, think I recall coming down to Melbourne, we, we were going to play an under-17s carnival, and I went to Richmond, and I trained with Richmond um, when John Northey was the coach in 95 and it was so wet we went down to the hockey centre just near um, the zoo there and trained because it was so wet you couldn't train at Punt Road and then I sort of said to them you know politely you know like you don't have any spare boots like I need some screw-ins to go and play I think we were playing in Wagga that year where it was just going to rain and then they said oh yeah we might be able to you know find your pair of screwing boots young fella <laughs> they pulled you know pulled a pair of boots out of the cupboard and gave me some but you know I had this I had this fabulous childhood I had you know four older brothers um, my sister came along when we were in Ernabella and it, it was just it was just amazing pretty crazy if you ask me you know to take five kids out bush but they did it and it set us on a path. Your dad, Michael, was obviously a ruck rover with uh, Richmond. Many listeners will, will know that listening today. Played a, a part in the 1969 Premiership, of course. He sadly 
passed away last year, but he, he was so much more than a footballer. I think the Richmond Chief Executive, Brendan Gale, described him as a man of great compassion, humanity and, and spirituality even. He was a teacher, as you mentioned, a community advisor in some of those remote community communities. And he was last year made a member of the Order of Australia. And, you know, those grounds and stands named after him in, in that part of the world as well. So you growing up, um, Joel, was footy always a part of your life? And were you familiar with, uh, as you as you got older, his standing in the game and, the, the I guess, how he's held at Richmond? Football was always part of the family and, and you know, having four older brothers um, plus the plus an older foster brother as well. So when I when I was born, there were five boys in the house who were older than me. You know, like we played sport. We played predominantly cricket and footy. That was, that was the, they were the two sports. I, I loved it. I, I still remember playing um, footy in the backyard. There was a park just out our back fence in Alice Springs. We lived out in Albrecht Drive um, and directly out our back fence there was, a, there was a park that was unreal. You know, the council looked after it. They grassed it. They watered it. They mowed it. You know, we had our little playground out there and I would play out there with my brothers for hours and hours at a time. We'd play footy and there was a couple of gum trees that we'd try and kick the goals at. There was the same gum tree that doubled as the cricket stump and we were just playing sport the whole time. What what I didn't know, well, I didn't know the standing my father had in the game. I didn't know his exploits as a as a ruck rover in the 69 grand final um, because he was a very humble and, you know, I think the headline was defined by decency. Um, that the age ran um, as his obituary, and he was just so humble. Um, never, never talked about his footy career on their on Mum and Dad's 25th wedding anniversary. That's probably the first time it really came up where Dad borrowed a big screen TV from friends of ours in Alice Springs. And back then, you know, we had a little 34 centimeter box that yeah. you couldn't, you know, the speaker didn't work, so you had to sit, we had to set up the VHS cassettes next to it and angle with the sound out forward, you know, like. <laughs> to borrow, I think it must have been, oh, God knows, a 60, 60 inch something. Like it was huge. But he borrowed it and we, we watched a replay of the 1969 Grand Final. And that's the first time I'd ever seen it. Yeah. I don't even know where they got the videotape from. But that was the first I really knew. You know, after after mum and dad being married for 25 years, and I would have been 13 or 14, maybe. You know, that's sort of the first point in time that, oh, shit, dad actually played in the VFL and, you know, played for Richmond. And we always sort of knew that Richmond stuff, but he never spoke about it. You know, he played really well in the grand final. We, we've learned this. He was in that, in Richmond's best players. Never spoke about it. You know, never, never, never talked himself up that he knew Royce Hart or Billy Barrett or Francis Burke or Dickie Clay or Michael Green or Kevin Ball or, the, you know, the champions. Like, they're the guys that are the dust like Royce Hart's the Dustin Martin of my dad's era and and, and he, he has said um, many a time that Royce Hart was the best player he ever saw play but he never, he never talked about it so yep I played a hell of a lot of footy <laughs> I got beat up by my brothers constantly and that, that probably toughened me up for footy when I got older but my old man was just humble he was spiritual he wrote a book before he died the crazy bastard he got MND and he'd written a PhD and he was just well he was halfway through it and he finished his PhD and then, then him and a couple of good friends from his time in Melbourne, one of them's a publisher, and they converted it into a book. So he's got a bit of a bit of a legacy he's left behind in in writing, as well as his family. And I think I think you know six kids, a foster a foster son, and seventeen or eighteen grandchildren. So he left a, he left a bit of behind behind. But again, he was just humble and and just a really lovely a lo- lovely dad to have. I you know I, I miss him greatly still today. Yeah. 
And I guess such is the club's respect for him. Current day club at Richmond, they actually took the, didn't they? They took the 2019 Cup up uh, up to Darwin so the whole family could celebrate together. And you mentioned MND. Yeah. You know, Neil Danaher's big freeze just raised, obviously, a record $14.5 million to fight MND. That, I mean, that must, days and, and weeks and periods like that when freeze MND roll around, I'm sure, are going to evoke some powerful emotion. In yeah, I think, that, I think that will. I haven't got, um, you know, too involved, clearly, because I'm up here. But, yeah, it is. It, it's an emotional thing and like you don't you just don't understand and this is the first um, first time I've lost someone really close to me and you just don't understand that feeling until it happens and you know to see the support and you know financial support as well that Neil's been able to harness that'll go away to finding a cure you know I've just had my Pfizer jab today they found a vaccine for this COVID thing in 12 months I think which is a record you know eventually they'll, they'll know more about this disease and they'll find a cure and someone who gets MND may be able to live for however many years you know I think the average is about two and a half three years and that's a really short period of time you know from diagnosis to, to passing away that's, mm. that's a really short period of time so family is you know the most important thing and, and their families can have time together and if that time's elongated after a diagnosis of, of whatever whatever disease and I know they found cures for a whole heap of things but if it's you know in the future on the back of the great work that Neil's done um, and I know Patrick Cunningham who I used to work the AFL is, is heavily involved with fight MND and, and he lost his wife to MND you know, it, it, it's something that, that will hopefully hopefully be eradicated or be managed a hell of a lot better into the future and, and it'll give families time with their loved ones, a bit, bit more time. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Up next, Joel Bowden's journey from Central Australia to Punt Road Oval. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're with two-time Richmond Best and Fairest winner, Joel Bowden. Joel, how do you reflect on your path to the AFL? Because looking at it, it wasn't the typical one by any means, was it? No, not typical. You know, Alice Springs probably gets oh, one player drafted every five to ten years now, if you look at it. I don't remember the last guy to get drafted out of Alice now, but I was I was really lucky because the father-son rule was still in place. And Dad played 59 AFL. Uh, VFL games mm. and at that point in time the father-son rule was if, if your father had played 50 AFL games and then the, the club could take you as a father-son so I got I got drafted off a couple of good under 16 schoolboys championships and under 17 Teal Cup championships as it was called back then um, but I also think I was extremely lucky to get drafted because I'm not sure they would have taken me if they had to draft me they were able to just tap me on the list I remember they came up Greg Beck and um, Brian Waldron back in the day flew up to Alice Springs came over mum made a nice big thing of lasagna which was her specialty dish <laughs> yeah. and they came in they got me to sign this little A5 piece of paper and that was it I was I was drafted yeah right no um, nervous no nervous club by club interviews then no nothing no, nothing at all in fact I think after that mum pretty much sent them on their way said alright thanks you know <laughs> See you later, and you know, we're going to clean up and go to bed. Um, yep. So, yeah, it, it wasn't, you know, like the normal draft now. It's all televised and all that sort of stuff, whereas mine, there was, there was none of that. I just I just turned up to Melbourne, and even even that, I, I didn't understand that part of it. I, I remember, you know, they said to me when they came up, oh, you know, you'll have to come down to Melbourne. And I was like, oh, okay, well, look, we, we normally come down 
to holidays. We go down um, to Victor Harbour just south of Adelaide for our Christmas holiday every year. We stay in the caravan park there. I said, I reckon when we get down there, I, I could ask Dad, and I'm pretty sure he'll drive me over and drop me off. Like, I reckon that's the, you know, the earliest that we can get down there. And this was, this was late November but maybe mm. in Alice Springs and you know in hindsight I just clearly had no idea and they sort of went oh Joel we, we'd fly you down mate and I was like really like you, you you fly people? They're like, yeah, we'd fly you down. And then I got a call from Robert Walls, who just come from Brisbane in the Northy Walls swap. So even though I trained at Richmond in 1995 for a night or two mm. and met Northy and, and, and the players, I got the call from Robert Walls to say, hey, Joel, you know, we're going to start training whenever it was next week. You know, we're keen to have you here day one. So the plane's booked, jump on it. And I was like, holy cow, here I go. So finished year 12, jumped on a plane, Dad gave me two fifty dollar notes and said good luck. Um, I was seventeen and a half years old. Moved to Melbourne. I had a couple of brothers living in a share house in North Fitzroy. So there I was sleeping on the lounge room floor with them. Borrowed a car that got stolen on my first day at training. <laughs> and yeah, that was it. Away I went. Started my started my training. Did a preseason and had you know had absolutely no idea. Couldn't run. I couldn't run around the tan to save myself. We did a couple of longer runs and Greg Deer, the former Hawthorne. When it came to Richmond, he would beat me in because I just couldn't run more than you know five k's. I'd never done it before, Jeez. and I I remember almost not sprinting but going hard early. I was running with Tony Free. He was coming back from a knee injury and was pretty fit. And we got got to the top of Anderson Street Hill. We rolled down around, and I'm going great. But then instead of doing the normal town, we sort of went left and went out over the um, Flinders Street Bridge and came back along the river. By the time by the time we'd done that, I was just absolutely wrecked and could hardly run you know and, and here comes Greg Deer pushing me you know saying come on young fella <laughs> so I had no idea I was 17 years old all I'd ever done is play footy in Alice Springs I never really you know I'd never really trained I'd done a pre-season um, and there I was running running up Anderson Street Hill with Tony Free and the, you know and 45 minutes later, the great Greg Deer was pushing me home. Yeah, and this might be harsh on him, but Robert Walls, Joel, doesn't strike me as the patient type. Um, what sort of impression did, did he leave on you in those early months and the early preseason? Well, it was, it was always um, a hard task, Master Wolsey. And, you know, I think I think later in his career and, and then in his commentary role, he, he sort of admitted that he probably was a bit too hard on people at times. I got him later in his career. Um, I certainly know stories of his time at Fitzroy from Michael Gale, who, who played under him there. But he was good to me, you know, he... He encouraged me. He gave me my first game. He, you know, yelled at me at training a few times. We were doing a smothering drill, and I got smashed in the face trying to smother a ball. I mean, you know, I had to go around the circle and smother like four or five people at a time. And you know, I got smashed in the face, and I sort of stopped and you know tried to hold my face, check it was bleeding. He just yelled at me, "Keep going, keep going." So you need, you know, you need. You need coaches who are who have got different different tools in their kit bag, and I think by the time I got to you know be tutored under under Walsy, he'd had a lot of experience. He, he you know changed a bit, maybe mellowed a bit, and mm. um, I might have got the best out of him. The only problem is he only he was only at Richmond for eighteen months, and I, I played one season under him where I broke my collarbone and missed missed ten weeks with a broken collarbone, which in hindsight I can't believe, but. You know, and then I came back and he actually, he got the sack. So I came back the, the week after he got the sack, which was a shame. So that, that first game that he gave you, it was round 1796. It was against Hawthorne at Princess Park, of all places. And uh, Matty Richardson kicks seven. The current CEO, uh, Brendan Gale, kicks four. And it's a different time back then. You have one kick, one handball in a 41-point win. But what are the memories? Oh, I just sat on the bench all day. That's yeah. what you did. Yeah. You know, you just, I just sat on the bench all day. And that was, as a, as a first gamer, 
you weren't first thing you weren't expecting to get in the starting eighteen. I got I got the game because actually Prescott the week before broke his collarbone and there was a spot I'd, I'd been going okay in the reserve. You know, and I get a game down at Pretty Park. The, pro- the biggest memory was that my family were there and my and my um, partner was there and they'd all come down to watch me. And you know, I went on Oregon with a couple of minutes before halftime. Can't remember exactly, but got the you know a ground ball and handballed it to someone. And then I got my you know my first kick was a deliberate out of bounds back in 1996. So, um, <laughs> Jeez, you know, I didn't even I didn't even earn it. I, I you know I was just there and some like obviously either handballed it or kicked it out of bounds directly. And didn't think they paid, paid it. So. Didn't think they paid that back in the mid 90s. No, I, I mean one day maybe I can have a look at the tape and see what it actually was but yeah so a pretty auspicious debut and I got dropped the next week you know clearly needed to improve in a few areas <laughs> you're with this is your sporting life brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives you can find them at tobinbrothers.com.au we'll be back with Joel Bowden after this break you're listening to this is your sporting life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with Richmond's dual All-Australian turned politician, Joel Bowden. Joel, you mentioned before the break Robert Walls was moved on, late 1997 it was, and he was replaced by Jeff Geeshan. So you had Walls, Geeshan, you had obviously the late Danny Frawley, Terry Wallace, and, and probably a bit of Jade Rawlings at the end. So were they all dramatically different in their own ways? No, not really. I think fundamentally football's a pretty simple game, and, and the coach facilitates, you know, to try and get the best out of the players. If, I think it's changed now in the modern era where there's a lot more one-on-one coaching. But, you know, in the beginning we'd have a team meeting on a Thursday night, play Saturday, so that was in the late 90s, to the end where we'd be having, there were some line coaches, but, I mean, it's gone even even further now with development coaches and a, and a lot more personal and professional development from, from where I sit and what I can see. Um, but I think, you know, my five or six coaches, or maybe even more, right, because I had reserves coaches, so I call it a dozen, all up over the journey, we're all, we're all very similar. I mean, they, they, they had their own little personal traits. And probably the only, the only one who really stood out for me with a different view on it was David Wheaton. And David was a skills coach, and, um, you know, he wrote the, the skills book, and he was very specific. He brought um, Johnny Wilkinson down to training once with Johnny Wilkinson's coach. And Wilkinson's the guy who kicked... Yeah the field goal to win the World Cup against Australia. I'll never forget that because Wilkinson practiced his goal kicking. He would practice for two or three hours at a time. Now, that was separate to the training that he did with the main group and whatever weights, whatever swimming, boxing, right, you know, whatever. He he would practice for two or three hours alone. And he wanted to kick the ball and land it on that little space that they put on the crossbar in rugby, and he called that top pocket. That's where he wants to land the ball every time. And it's amazing. Like, that insight has never left me because if you want to actually be good at something, you've got to practice it and practice it and practice it. But don't practice it in a bad way. You have to actually practice to be perfect. Mm. And that's what he was doing. He was practicing to land the ball on top of that black, I don't know how wide that black mark is on the crossbar. Let's just say it's 30 centimetres wide every time. And I I just found that amazing. And, And still, and it came up recently, I think, um, someone kicked more points than behinds again in a game. Might have been St Kilda. Goal kicking is 
the bane of a coach's existence because bad goal yeah. kicking is bad footy and you can lose games of football through bad goal kicking. So, But look, yeah, five coaches, they were all pretty similar. Um, I, I enjoyed every one of them. I didn't like them when they dropped me, which happened a few times, but that's part of footy. All in all, I just I had a great time. I just enjoyed myself. Yeah. I, I loved playing footy at Richmond, and, and in hindsight, I couldn't have asked for I couldn't have asked for much more. Like you know, maybe maybe I should have gone a year earlier, or maybe I could have stayed a year later. But regardless. Like, I just had a great time there and, and made some great friends and will be forever grateful. for Your evolution as a player, Joel, so I think you started as a forward. There might have, might have been a bit of time in the midfield, but it appeared across half-back or anywhere in that back half of the ground that you were you were most comfortable or at least played your best footy. Yeah, and maybe that's because I had a lot of coaches as well, but also because we weren't a very good side, to be honest. You know, we had a good year in, in 2001 and made the finals, but unfortunately, apart from that, in my 14 years, we didn't make the finals. We came close a few times, but missed out. Um, and I think I was a bit of a byproduct of that, you know, move around, try and change things up. So, yeah, I played early, early in my career. I played halfback. I went to half forward. Um, into the 2000s, I played on the wing a lot for a couple of years. Like 2000, 2001, I was on the wing. Went into the midfield, and then by sheer necessity... Um, played a game at centre-half back in Brisbane on Jonathan Brown because I think Darren Gasper, Andy Kellaway, Ben Holland, anyone else who was over six foot one in the back line was injured. And they said, shit, Joel, can you do it? Um, we'll, we'll give you a spell every now and then. Um, but yeah, we need you to do this. And, and I did, and I, I, I played okay. I think what surprised them is I ran off and got the ball myself, and that put Brown out of position. And, and so for the next three or four years, I played, yeah, centre-half back. Yeah. Um, and it's probably one of my one of my favourite, you know, couple of years playing centre-half back alongside my younger brother, Patrick, who came over from the Dogs. And we had some really interesting games of football. We, <laughs> we won some games of football. We lost some games of football. Um, and, and some would say that we, you know, me and my brother just kicked the ball to each other. Well, some, had, some, had some, fun. <laughs> some would say that. I've got it down here. So he joined the club in 06, Patrick, and... I know we had the Cracker Brothers, but seriously, that season, mate, there was a fair bit of waxing going on there, wasn't there? Oh, there was heaps. There was heaps. And, you know, it was an open conversation at the club. I remember Chris Hyde saying, you know, and Chris Hyde was, was a wingman midfield sort of half back, And he said, he said to me, Joe, I was running out the wing that day at the G, um, Southern Stand side. Um, I was about five or ten metres in front of Patrick. We were both free. And I kept running because I knew you weren't kicking it to me. I said, no. I said to him, Heidi, I'm never kicking it to you when you're standing next to my brother. And he said, yeah, I know. I said, that's good. Like, we all knew. And that, that was the thing. We all knew. And what better thing to do in, in my career as a footballer in the AFL to play on the MCG and be out there and have kick to kick with your brother? Yeah. You, you know, you used to do it after the game, run on the field and have kick to kick. <laughs> Here I was doing it, you know, it was live action. And I, look, I think, and I, I mean, I don't, some, some have said this, that the game against Adelaide, which is my 200th game, when Richmond, the yes. entire team just kicked the ball to each other and we had the most marks ever in a game yes. was the advent of the press because the Crows used to flood the centre-half back and we knew this and they would flood the centre-half back they would try and turn the ball over there and then they'd try and open you up the other way and we just decided me and my brother to just kick it back and forth to each other the whole day so that that was and, round 8 2006 it was obviously down at Docklands, and uh, you mm. have 20 marks. Patrick has 15. Andy Calloway has 15. Kane Pettiver has 15. It's the ultimate game of keepings off. And 
How much has the game changed? I mean, your own supporters are actually jeering you for going sideways at various stages of this game, Joel. Oh, and so were the forwards. Don't worry. Rich whoever else who was down there, they're screaming at it. Um, and Richo screamed at me for the next two or three years after that because at times <laughs> we just decided to hold on to the ball. And the game's changed because what's happened is the press evolved. When we started doing that and Malthouse and a few others, um, Ross Lyon, were coming into their probably the peak of their coaching, they decided that there was no point letting people have the ball for a third of the ground. You might as well just go and get it. And then the rotations increased so that blokes were fresh. And it was just like, you get on, you got six minutes, you just go hammer and tong, and then you can have two to three minutes off. I mean, Dane Swan won a Brownlow medal playing less game time. He, he was on the field less time, but he was running at an optimal pace and was able to cover the ground and get more kicks and, and won a Brownlow medal. It was the it was the advent of rotations and the press. And and I, I have had people say to me, you know, that it was it was off the back of that game where everyone watched that game and went, hang on, what what are the Crows doing? Why aren't they going and getting the ball? Shit, we've got to go and get the ball. The Crows were seven and one going into that game, and you guys were, were three and four, and and you, you you snatched the three point win in the end. It was a seismic afternoon. And then there's another game I want to take you to a few years later, Joel. So there's Donald Bradman, Sir Donald Bradman. There's Tiger Woods. There's Wayne Gretzky. There's even Walter Lindrum, athletes who changed their respective sports forever, Joel. Now there's the rush behind rule. Are you taking credit for that, or is that Hawthorne's doing? No, that's Hawthorne's doing. Absolutely. Well, I would take you to round 16, 2008, <laughs> and you were at the centre of a major controversy regarding rush behinds. You, your side was up by a kick against Essendon. There was less than a minute left. Now, you wiped the remaining time off the clock, again, very shrewdly, because well within the rules at the time, by taking the kick-ins but just simply venturing out of the square only to retreat slowly and handball twice directly over the line from, from the kick-out. So... That was before the grand final of 2008, of course. That was mid-season. Yes, it was. And look, it would would be wrong of me not to give credit to the backline group that I was playing with Mm. at that stage. Jay Schultz was playing with us then, Andy Kellaway, Patrick Bowden, my younger brother. And we, you know, it was sort of going back to what we were talking about before about um, the line coaches we got a little group together and we had our first sort of, you know, backline group and we were talking and, you know, we're going through stuff and we actually practiced it a couple of times. We practiced it where um, like a, a out of bounds on the full in the forward pocket is one of the worst spots to be on the ground because you're hemmed into that pocket. All you can do is just go long down the line. So we had a chat about it. We're like, well, here's, here's an idea. From there, you walk, you walk up and you get in front of the post if you're hemmed all the way back. Someone will stand behind the goals. Quite simply, all you do is run and handball it to them through the goals. They get to then run to the top of the square, which is 10 metres or 9 metres, plus the person the man of mark has to be 5 metres. Like, we've opened up the entire oval because we've conceded a point. And we did, we did it a few times. And then in Brisbane, we played Brisbane up there and we won a game and Patrick stepped through the goals once. Yeah. But because it was in Brisbane, not at the MCG and, you know, not with not with one, um, not with a minute to go and just a few points in it. That was earlier, wasn't it? the publicity. Yeah. yeah, yeah you've much, been doing yeah. it for a while, but it was just that, yeah, as I say, that game mid-2008 was the one that really blew it up. In, fa- in fact, you weren't popular at the time, you individually, Joel. The tactics caused a real uproar. I think Mike Sheehan at the time 
even likened it to the infamous Trevor Chapel underarm incident. He did. I think Michael Michael went a little bit too far there. He might have got caught up in, in a little bit of hype because it wasn't going to cause cross Tasman friction. <laughs> it was only going to it was only going to change the result of a game of AFL footy. And, and Matthew Knights, who's a good friend of mine, um, he was the coach at Essendon at the time, and his response after the game was, "I know Joel. He's a smart guy. He figured it out. That's in the rules." Mm. Yep, move on. So, yeah, I, I did do it. Um, the situation leading up to that was I was on the bench, um, and I said to the guy Mark Opie, I think still there. He must have been. He must be team manager now for 500 games of football. I said to him, "How long to go?" And he said, "Oh, we've got about a minute and a half." two minutes. I said, all right, no, just get me on. I said, just get me on. So they put me on and I ran straight down. I got a, I got a mark and that was it. The ball wasn't in play again, except for, <laughs> um, except for I, I ended up kicking the ball in um, and Geordie McMahon marked it, you know, and what did he do after I just wasted a minute or so? I've kicked it to him out on the far, far flank yeah. out the front of the Southern stand. What does he do? He plays on. <laughs> It's like, my God, are you serious? <laughs> we've just we've just run the clock down. You put your reputation and... on the line by doing this, <laughs> and you've played on. <laughs> oh, amazing! Now the siren the siren went, and he and he, you know, he sort of didn't get tackled. But there was a bloke sort of a couple of meters behind him, and I was like, holy shit! How do you do that, mate? How do you not? And 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 that's the thing. Footy footy's a, a fabulous game, and it has a, a wide range of different people. Who play, and sometimes we see we see interesting decisions made at, at the wrong time. And, and I did them. You know, I made heaps of mistakes. You make more mistakes playing a game of footy than than you actually do good things. It's the amount of time you're not with the ball in your hand came back to me very quickly when they started um, doing our our possessions and our highlight reels essentially for us. And you know, you go and look at your tape, and you'd have six minutes or eight minutes. That's that's how long you're on the screen for with the ball in your hand. Mm. And that's that's if you had 20 possessions, you know. 120 minutes of footy and you've got the ball for eight minutes. It's it's what you do without the ball. We're talking to Joel Bowden on This Is Your Sporting Life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll talk life after footy with Joel after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And Joel Bowden is our guest today. Joel, we touched on it earlier, but 265 games, only the three finals, only the one win. That was a good one. 2001 semi-final against the Blues. Uh, Eras come and go, but obviously the current Richmond side and the success that it's had, does it make you wonder what if, if you came a bit earlier, it came a bit later in in your career? No, not at all. I am... I've had people ask me this question from time to time, mm. and you can't pick your era. You you simply just can't. You have to hope that you're good enough to get drafted, and I got a lucky break being a father's son. Hope that you can break into the side and stay fit and healthy, and then just be gracious and happy that you're at a club that has success. Now, 
different individuals drive success and, and who knows what the defining feature is and um, one day they'll figure it out. They'll do a, a regression analysis of it and they'll figure it out. There's actually X that defines it. But until they do that, I think you just have to be comfortable and satisfied with your era and, and where you play because I wouldn't give up my 14 years of AFL footy if you said to me, um, you can play three you can play three to five years and you'll play finals you know, every every year and, and you, you'll win a grand final yeah right. like, I, I, st- I still wouldn't give it up because it was a life experience i had i had the best time at richmond where i met people who watched my dad play who watched my older brother sean play i played with my brother you know i played at the club of my family mm. for 14 years and we went through a lot of downs but a lot of ups you know i played in over 110 or something wins now the problem is i played 150 losses <laughs> Yeah. But that makes you the person that you are. And who knows? The the opportunities that were given at Richmond enabled me to be the Players Association president. We started the Ladder Foundation. We built 21 apartments at, at 15 Hoddle Street. You know, I was on the committee that started the Tigers in Community Foundation, which today is the current Gummidgee Institute. I did all these things over a 14-year period that if, if I'd only had a short five-year career, I would never have got the opportunity to do it. Yeah, no. Now, success... Success is great, and I don't know what the taste of success is because the best we did was, you know, we had one finals win, and and that was great. I still remember after the game um, in the in the change room saying to a few different people, and David Burke was one of them, another father son. I said, "Jesus, they're going to want to get the cop organised if we actually win next week and play a grand final." Like it was so loud in the old change rooms over on the members' side. But that's what they're experiencing over the last four years, and I couldn't be happier to sit back and watch and. Enjoy this current team, which there's still a few guys there who I played with and, and know and and respect from the time that that we were together. I couldn't be happier because it's not just the 22 players who play, or, or there's a few more than that now. But it's not just these Premiership players; it's the it's the million Richmond supporters across the country that are happy because for 37 years since 1980 Richmond were maligned and got to the point where Richmond were their people's second team you know Fitzroy was everyone's second side mm. for a while mm. then it was Richmond and that that just makes me you know so happy and on top of that Brendan Gale a good mate of mine is the CEO you know Trent Koch and Jack Rewatch Shane Edwards are the three who are still there that I played with and I saw them all when they were kids you know just 18, 19 year old kids um, and here they are, senior Richmond champions and legends. They will go down in folklore as a, you know, Trent Cochin, a triple premiership captain. Um, I just, just think it's fabulous. Now, on top of all that, I went through an era of AFL football without the iPhone or mobile phone cameras. And aren't you blessed? And aren't I blessed? Because the advent and and scrutiny that that has brought onto society, and not you know, not just players, but society... I just think, you know, I got I played at the right time. You know, my first year, the base wage went from 7500 to $15,000. Like, it was a doubling of the base wage. And I remember there in 96, you know, a few of my mates there, Ross Funk, um, specifically saying to me when I arrived, because he got drafted in 95 and was at Richmond in 95, he said, oh, you're lucky. You've come, you know, and they've doubled the wage. Now, $15,000 for me, I came out of high school, was the most money I'd ever seen in my whole entire life. I couldn't believe it. Plus, I 
I did an AFL traineeship in that first year, which I think I got 11 or 12 grand, like I earned $27,000 as an 18-year-old. It was the right time and you had the chance to do extra studies. Like I did a traineeship year in my first year. I went out to La Trobe Uni, did a couple of years out there, transferred into the city, got my, you know, got my Bachelor of Education degree, was able to work, was able to run a business. Like I was in an era where there was flexibility. The, the timetables and the schedule that I've seen recently, there's just no flexibility. Mm. Throw in lockdown where they packed up and went to Queensland for a hundred and something days. Footy is a full time career. Yeah. You have to yeah. you know, you have to just give up everything else essentially. And I don't think that would have suited me because I've I've studied, I've worked, I've done all these got all these different experiences through my fourteen year career that have translated now into my post football career. And football, essentially if you play an A for footy it's the opportunity cost because you can't do anything else now. I think when I was playing and, and others, we had the opportunity to do other things, to get education, to get work experience, to do all those other things that I did with the Players Association and the footy club. I'm glad you mentioned all those things. I wanted to ask you if politics was something that you were always going to pursue. Obviously, last February, you know, it was a big year for you last year. You won the Johnston by-election, then had the actual election in August. So was it always going to be politics, did you think, Joel, or was that something that came about relatively later on in the scene? Uh, look, I, I, I don't... I've always been interested, um, and growing up in a, a very strong Catholic Labor family, it was always a conversation of what was going on. You know, I remember Bob Hawke coming to Alice Springs. You know, we followed the, the 91 to 96 Keating era and, and enjoyed that. I, you know, I didn't quite enjoy the Howard years and all conservative-type behaviours that were there were throughout the year. And I certainly didn't enjoy the Rudd, Gillard-Rudd years where Labor just stuffed it up. But I was always politically aware and, and somewhat active. You know, if you're the head of the Players Association, you get to meet a whole heap of people, including politicians. So I, I'd been drawn to it, you know, many, in, in many, many different aspects. And then when the opportunity came up here, um, and a by-election has always sprung upon you, but when it came up and they rang, I said, well, yeah, I'll do it. I'm, I'm ready. I've got an enough experience my kids are now my youngest one was seven so i had a i had i got four kids and you know i had seven nine eleven thirteen where that you know they don't want to look after themselves to a certain degree that they don't actually need you watching over them and you know i said yeah i'll do it and we, we worked bloody hard and we won that by-election the the general election was different but i i think it's a good fit for me i, I reflect on on what i'm doing now in the community it's very similar to what i was trying to do at richmond with the work with the tigers and community foundation stuff where we had all the players every single player was volunteering with a community group of one shape or another during a period of time there when I was leading the charge behind the scenes and at the Players Association and the stuff we did with Ladder, the other stuff we did around the illicit drugs policy, um, around donations and sponsorship and, and contributing in the community and, and this role is an extension of that. The, the nice thing is that at, at some point in time, and, and my time in politics has, has pretty much coincided with um, coronavirus, so there hasn't been a great deal of policy, but in the future I'll get to contribute to a policy discussion and a, um, hopefully some really strong policy outcomes. It helps more people, helps working people, helps those less fortunate get an opportunity to have different services and um, different opportunities in life. And, and that's what I see as a great opportunity here in politics. You get to actually make laws. And the push for a team in the NT's AFL team is something you're pretty passionate about. Where, where is that at as as we speak, Joel? It's really in its infancy. There, there's been a feasibility or a fees owed done on it. Bastion did it a few years, oh, about two years ago. It's only just been released. 
I, I think there's a... Well, I know the Northern Territory needs to diversify its economy. Um, again, the, the Territory is very small. There's only 250,000 people who live up here and our, our economy is not that diverse. When it comes to an AFL team, an AFL team in the Northern Territory would bring a part of that leading sport economy to the Territory, which, which we don't have. There are also a wide range of social benefits that would come with it and we have an Indigenous population of about 30 in the Northern Territory of the Northern Territory population who are, um, as a generalisation, you know, love footy. And we have a lot of disadvantage in the Northern Territory of which um, the Indigenous population is front and centre of that. So there, there are a whole different wide range of reasons why I think mm. a team up here could could be successful and it, it, one is that it would um, it would give the Northern Territory population a team to support and it would give kids an opportunity to aspire to play for their home team. I mean, I, you know, even though I didn't know subconsciously the fact that my dad and my brother had played at Richmond, I had this aspiration that I, I could play league footy. And, you know, it, it came to fruition and I was so lucky. You know, maybe that's what kids in the Northern Territory also need. And yeah. who knows when it'll be? Maybe it'll be in 10 or 20 years. Maybe we'll have a... a a hybrid model where we get seven games up here and mm. you know and seven games in Melbourne and then the others are played away in you know the other capitals but there's a team that Territorians say oh yeah that's my team and it also contributes to the economy because if you have a sporting event in the Darwin CBD and it, and it draws 10,000 people that might not sound a lot for an AFL game but for a, a city of 100,000 that's one in 10 people are going to the footy. I've got to say it's been a pleasure to catch up today you blazed your own trail to the AFL you were a consistent performer for so long in the yellow and black dual best and fairest honours and two All-Australian selections say uh, all that and more about your career and your legacy lives on it must be said when it comes to aspects of the rule book well done on all you achieved and continue to achieve in the political world thanks for joining us no thank you and thank you for joining us also you've been listening to this is your sporting life for tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.